0: Welcome to Casting Hope, the sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to his promises. I invite like you to turn with me to James chapter 1 verse 19. If you have your own Bible, you can turn there with me to James 1.19. As we continue our journey through the book of James. Now, it's called the book of James, not because it's about James, but because it's written by James. Who was James? Well, James shows up quite a bit in other books of the Bible. So in the Gospel of Matthew, we learn that he was a brother of Jesus. He grew up in Jesus' household. Probably was raised by a single mom. You may have heard of her. Her name Mary. With at least seven or more siblings. In a low income house. In John we learn that James didn't follow Jesus. This is what John says. Quote, for even his own brothers did not believe him. But we learn in 1 Corinthians from the Apostle Paul. That Jesus pursued James after his resurrection, not to ridicule James or to say "I told you so," you know, "Look at me now," kind of thing. No, but to graciously give him faith. Just think about that for a minute. I mean, here's a whole sermon in just the title of his book, James. Jesus doesn't give up on James. Even though James gave up on Jesus, even though James mocked Jesus, Jesus in his mercy and his grace does not ridicule James or mock James for his unbelief. But graciously approaches him and gives him to the gift of faith. So the late David Paulson like to say that God's grace is not conditional, but neither is it Unconditional. God's grace, he says, is contra-conditional. I'm quoting him, contrary to what I deserve, he loves me. And now I can begin to change. Not because I can earn his love, but because I've already received it. That's contra-conditional love. And that is the testimony of James. Period. In stop. Contrary to what he deserved, James was sought out by Jesus. Maybe that's all you need to hear this morning. I would be glad. James becomes a leader in the ancient church before he was killed for his love of Jesus. And so, what we have before us is not really a letter that sort of tames what we have before us. What we have before us is an ancient pastoral sermon. We're into the earliest Christian followers, Jesus followers. And if we pay attention to this sermon, we notice that the early church was on the margin of society, subject to injustice, subject to persecution, without a safety net in the face of famine, without a safety net in the face of persecution, and without a safety net in the face of sickness. Which is why James talks about three things over and over again in this sermon. Trials, and then wisdom, and then socioeconomics. It just comes up all the time in James. Why? Because that's what his church was dealing with. So James wants to walk through these three themes with Jesus. And he introduces these three themes in the first 11 verses. We've gone through these already. Last week, we looked at his unpacking of these three themes. So he starts with trials. That was last week. And this morning, we're going to take another look at wisdom. What would it look like to walk wisely with Jesus through trials? Not around. Let's read the passage before us. We'll pray, and then we'll dig in. This is, again, James chapter 1, verse 19. You can follow along as I read. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man, or human anger, does not produce the righteousness or justice of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you, a rock and a redeemer and Holy Spirit. You superintended these words, you breathed these words, would you awaken our hearts, soften our hearts, so that when we hear your word, as Elizabeth read for us, when that word does its work, that it would not harden us, but it would indeed enlighten us. Make us more truly human. Make us worshipers and seeing your beauty in different ways, in more ways, in maybe the same ways, but refreshed. So that by the time we're done this morning, our hearts would be singing of you, Jesus. That's our desperate plea. That's our cry. That's our prayer. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few months ago, I read a book called Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. It's a great title. And it's full of great advice. Uh, But one of the most helpful things i read in this book had to do with emails. And I offer it to you for free. Uh, The author said, whenever he receives an email that makes him anxious or angry, he makes sure that his response is at least a day old and less than four sentences. I see some nodding heads. I imagine we've all experienced maybe relief when we didn't press in, or perhaps remorse and regret when we did press in. Our own Ohio State right here released a study a few, uh, I guess years ago now, which showed that those who sort of vent their anger verbally via email felt worse afterwards than better. Before they sent it, they thought it would make them feel better. They actually did the opposite. I don't think we needed a, like, a scholarly research paper for us to prove this. I think we all know the feeling. See, whenever we're angry, whenever we're anxious, words tend to flow. I think word count and human anger have sort of an unhealthy, codependent relationship. Whenever we're angry or anxious, we tend to lose what some have called verbal self control. Why do we do this? Well, I wonder if it's because something we cherish feels threatening and words feel like our first line of defense, or or maybe it's a way to or, to take matters into our own hands. Something isn't right, so we want to make it right in our way, in our time, and usually it starts with our with our words. Well, if you look at James's sermon here, we will see that this isn't a new problem at all. James says in verse 19, if you look again, Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man, or human anger, does not produce the righteousness or justice of God. So remember, real quick, this is a sermon written to the earliest believers in and around Jerusalem. And they were exiled because of their following of Jesus, and so they must have struggled in this unique area that James highlights right here, and I think we can just imagine why, if you just put yourself in their shoes for a second, they were being exploited by their employers, we know this from James chapter 5, they were being exiled by their rulers, we know this from verse 1, and they were experiencing trials, hardships, that were causing them not to question God's existence, but they question God's very goodness. And so they were tempted to do what I think verse 20 speaks of. Produce the justice of God with human anger. They wanted to make things right. That's what righteousness means here. When that, when that phrase, when we encounter that phrase, that can mean different things in different places, and all is sort of understood according to context. And in this context, we know that what is being described here as the righteousness of God is sort of the rightness, the rightness, the putting to rights of God. And James is saying that that putting to rights the wrong way to do it is. Human anger. One scholar says their struggle was, quote, a hasty and impetuous desire to promote God's desire. They're new followers of Jesus, things aren't going well at all. And so they wanted, in human anger, to do something about it. But James just says, slow down. Now the Bible does talk about a righteous anger. That's another sermon. But here James is talking about human anger. I mean, he actually puts this qualifier down. Human anger. And he does that on purpose. He's essentially saying, when your world feels threatened, there is another way. There is a better word than your quick, angry words. What is that better word? Well, James points us to the word made flesh in Jesus. That's what He does in the flow of thought of this sermon. The active and living Word, who is Jesus Himself, and then the living and active Word of God, the Scriptures, which point to Jesus. And so instead of relying on our sort of hasty, blustery words to make things right, God's going to have us rely on His saving Word. How do we do that? Well, James shows us the way. We first receive this living Word, and then second, we embody it. I want to look at both. First, we receive His saving Word. Look at verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. So there are two movements in this verse. One is sort of negative and one is positive. The first movement, which is more negative, we'll call severance, and then the second movement, which is more positive, we'll call surrender, severance and surrender, we receive the word first by severing, severing what? What I would say is not true of you, by severing what is not true of you in Christ, what James uh, in this verse calls human anger, filthiness, and rampant wickedness, we sever it, because it's not true of us in Christ. I actually love how Eugene Peterson translates these three things. Human anger, spoiled virtue, and cancerous evil. Human anger, as I said, is not righteous anger. Righteous anger mirrors the anger of Jesus against injustice, against evil. Just read the Psalms and you're going to see a lot of it. But human anger, we know, is a mixed bag of all kinds of things. And then spoiled virtue is what our translation sort of calls filthiness. In the ancient world, this word, I found is very interesting, this word exactly was used for earwax. So James is talking about sort of receiving the word, and he's saying sever or put away earwax, which is, of course, this sort of word, spoiled virtue or filthiness. It was also used for dirty laundry. And then cancerous evil. So evil and sin have a way of growing, growing rampant. It's not sort of a neutral thing. Like cancer. And James says what? What's he say about these things? He says, put these things away. Why put away? Because they're not your true identity in Jesus. They don't fit anymore. It's like Cinderella's shoe." Remember, if you've seen the movie, Cinderella's been around for a while, I'm sure you know the story. Uh, Everyone tries on the shoe and it doesn't fit, right? That is sin and evil for the believer who's in Christ. It just doesn't fit the foot anymore. It's, It's just not who you are in Christ. These things don't fit. They were killed dead on the cross. They just don't fit anymore. So what do we do? We put them away. We put them away. And this is a very, I think, helpful way to view sin and evil. On the one hand, James has a very high view of sin and evil. He names it. But if you are in Christ, this is your sin, but it is not you. As one writer puts it, our identity in Christ is received, not achieved, which means something about sin and evil in our life. It means, first of all, that the best that we accomplish is not our core identity. But it also means that the worst that we do is not our core identity. The sin and the evil, the sort of cancerous, spoiled virtue that James talks about here, is not your core identity, because your core identity is received, not achieved. That means that anything that is not received in Christ is not most true about you right now. If you're leaning on Jesus, if your empty hands of faith are clinging to Him. And so what do we do with it? We put it away. It's a battle. A daily battle. But we sever what is not true of us in Christ. And this is the first way James gives for us to be receptive to the Word. So that's severing. The next movement is more positive, which is surrendering. Surrendering to what is most true of us, which is our union with Jesus. Look again at verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive, 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 what? With meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Notice how James describes the true word as over and against our human words. Number one, it's implanted, and it saves. So James assumes these Christians have something deeply embedded into them. At their conversion, the moment where they cried uncle and cling to Jesus, something was deeply implanted into who they were. The prophet Jeremiah would say this happened. He says, well, Jeremiah 31, 33 This is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And the Lord says to Jeremiah, I will put my instructions where? Deep within them. And I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's relationship language. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness. And I will never again remember their sins. What are we saying? What's not true to us? What are we surrendering to? What is most true to us? There's a paradox here. The way we receive the saving word is by surrendering to what has already been sort of planted there by God Himself. Isn't that good news? What is most true about you in your union with Jesus, we simply receive, James says, being planted. We receive it, James says, humbly or meekly. I think the word receive here is kind of a bit tame. Uh, one New Testament scholar says it's better translated to, to surrender. I mean, receive is kind of like, oh, you know, I ordered that from Amazon and I received it. Yay. You're right. That's fun. But this is not that. This is a, a stronger word. This is a more humble word. This is a word where you sort of have to um, say to Jesus and to His inspiring word, have your way. It's, you know, as C.S. Lewis would put it, it's like a laying down of your arms. It's a laying down of your which is an appropriate metaphor with what James just shared about our sort of human, angry words. We lay down our arms. The ways that we rule our roofs, the way that we rule our universe, we lay it down, we surrender it, and we say to King Jesus, the only good and true, perfect king, have your way. We surrender humbly. We surrender hourly. This word receive is in the verbal form that is continual. So it's not just the once- kind of continue, like a, a single sort of receiving, it is a continual surrender. I think of water and, and my need for water. The same is true of the gospel. We need Jesus and his word every moment. I love how Alec Moyer describes this. I'm just going to quote it in full. Salvation can be spoken of in the past because the work of salvation was completed by Jesus when he died for us. Amen? It can also be spoken of as future. Because the full experience of salvation will not be ours until Jesus comes again. Here's where I want you to tune in. But it is also present in that day by day that we can experience a greater and greater measure of what has been done for us in the Lord, past and future. We can experience it day by day. In this passage, James, the tense of the verb aroes, that's the name of the verb, underlines the power of what? The implanted word. To actually make salvation a positive reality and daily experience. A positive reality and daily experience. And so James is saying, instead of humanly angry words, receive the true word. By severing what's not most what you think is true of you, but isn't sin and evil, and surrendering to his most true of you, your union with Jesus. Uh, James isn't the only pastor in the New Testament who recommends putting off and putting on. The Apostle Paul does this too, and they're both basically saying that the Christian life isn't about obeying in order to be saved, but to live in light of your salvation, to live in light of your core identity in Christ. Huge difference. I've heard this reality actually described as getting transferred to a new sports team, something I've never experienced, like imagine magic. <laughs> uh, whenever a player changes teams, they put off their old uniforms and they put on the new. And so this sort of putting off and putting on was described to me in this way. But the transfer, sort of, as sort of taking off a uniform and putting on a uniform, goes way deeper than that. They have a new way of doing things. There's a new team culture. There's a new coach, for goodness sake. Later today, I don't know if you know, but former Buckeye quarterback is going to start for the Chicago Bears, which is exciting for me as a Bears fan. Not a huge Bears fan, but if I were to pick a team, I'd be Bears. Sorry, Browns and and other fans. Um, But this is a big deal, because up to now, Justin Fields has been throwing plays for Ohio State. Up till now. But he put on his new team jersey. He put on his new team ways. He's simply severing what's old and, and surrendering, really, to what's new. And that can be a helpful way to consider what it is to live with Jesus. We've been transferred. And so we put away what was old and we put on what was new. We're not earning what is new. We have it already. We've been given the uniform. We're living in light We're not kicked off the team when we fail to throw the old play or the new play in light of the old play. No, we're not kicked off the team. Because we're in Jesus. There's no way we can be kicked off the team. The Apostle Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are where? In Christ Jesus. And so I think when we're anxious or when we're angry, James would say, receive this saving word. I think there's some practical implications to this before we move on to embodying the word which James talks about next I'll just offer a few things number one, this causes me to be suspicious of my own words this this sort of moment in James' sermon gives me a healthy suspicion especially of my hot words Proverbs 10 19 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking But whoever restrains their lips is prudent. I think people who are eager and dependent and receptive upon God's saving word, I think it produces a healthy suspicion of their own words. One scholar says, I love this phrase, because it has a big word, and I not like big words. I'll tell you what it means though. True religion is taciturn taciturn just simply means you're reserved in your speech. We don't hastily and angrily sort of make things right with our words. Some of you are like, well, hopefully this makes Joe's sermons a little shorter. <laughs> you know, James has, a, I think, a pretty robust theology of words. After all, he's telling us to be taciturn with words. So he's not saying don't speak up at all or don't use words at all. But there's a posture that we have. It's almost like a, Lord, I recognize the temptation to use with my words something uh, inappropriate. Sometimes we think we're speaking for God when it's actually just maybe baptized in narcissism. We think we have God on our side here, and so we just speak with a little bit more... Mm. Ironically, a high view of the true word, Jesus in the scriptures, should give us a chastened view of our own words. I love this from one scholar from the 20th century, describes our calling this way, we listen to God attentively before trying to speak in his name. And such a sense of the majesty and mystery of God and of the reverence due to his word should kill cocksureness and glibness and make us humble, both in our theological activity and our witness. Amen. That's good. We have a healthy reservation because we revere God's Word. I think it means we suspend our hot words. So what what do I mean? I think um, our sinfully angry words Because there is such a thing as a healthy anger A righteous anger But too often it's not And James wants to sort of Kill this idea that our angry words And actions will somehow bring about God's best One Interpreter of James Even calls this moment James's pacifist Turn Why why do they say that? because it's essentially love thy enemy in practice. We suspend our angry words. We ask God, in other words, to grow the space between stimulus and response. Because inside that space, we then ask God to do what James recommends. Commands you. Receive the living word. Put away Sever what is not most true of you and surrender to what is most true of you. So we receive the word. Next, James would have us embody the word. Okay, so this is the next part of James's sermon. So he wants us to obey the word, to not just receive it, but to live it out. So look again at the next paragraph, verse 22. But the doers of the word, so it's almost like correcting an immediate thought that maybe the congregation would have in those days. So, okay, you're telling me to receive the word. Okay, I'll come and I'll listen to the word or I'll open the Bibles um, and, and I'll read the word. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I listen to a sermon podcast or something like that and I'll receive the word. And then James just says, but, okay, okay, that's good. Receive the word. But the way you receive it is unique in Christ. Verse 23, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, they're like one who looks intently at their natural face in a mirror. Verse 24, for he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. So James is directing us again, away from our own insufficient words, and towards God's sort of life-giving sufficient word, And we receive it like soil receiving a plant, an implanted word, which is James' first analogy. But now we sort of are asked to grow into it, to embody it. Why? Why? James gives us two amazing pictures to answer the why question. I'll put it this way. The number one reason here, or at least one of the reasons is to become truly human. We're doers of the word, not just hearers of the word, because otherwise, James says, we're deceiving ourselves. As image bearers of God who have been renewed by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, we're deceiving ourselves. To make this point, James compares the sort of hearer, but not doer, uh, to a person who looks into a mirror, but doesn't do anything about it. Now, to understand this image, we need to know a couple things about ancient hearers. The first thing we need to know is, is that ancient mirrors were not these like sort of perfect reflections like ours today. Uh, they would be maybe the equivalent of looking into a dirty spoon. The Apostle Paul, maybe you are, are familiar, compares sort of life in this confusing, like, just, like, slog of life, this hard to grasp, this sort of broken, the sort of sometimes the, the grief and the injustice that we experience in life— all these things, Paul compares all of that to looking into a mirror, which doesn't make sense if we're thinking of our modern mirrors. (laughs) It makes sense, though, when we think about a dirty spoon, it's like, it's it's sort of like a, a foggy, funhouse mirror. That's life, says the Apostle Paul. We look and we, and we we're trying to, to see clarity and the future where Jesus makes all things new, but it's just it's just hard. It's just hard. That analogy doesn't work with the mirror that you know you and I looked at this morning. Second thing though we need to look at, and it connects, that we need to know about in ancient mirrors that ancient mirrors were largely remedial. Okay? People used these imperfect mirrors. Why? Because something was wrong that needed fixing. It. That's why. Like a wound or dirt. You don't, you know, in those days, you didn't look at a mirror to sort of just check yourself out. You looked into a mirror because something was wrong that needed remedy. In other words, mirrors led to action. You following that? Like So mirrors led to action. Looking into a mirror wasn't just sort of a thing in and of itself. You didn't just look into a mirror. A mirror was remedial and it led to action. So what James is saying here is if you look into the Word of God and then you sort of do nothing, it's like looking into a mirror to discover where the blood is coming from right and you find the cut you're like, yes, found it and more importantly you sort of found the way to heal the cut and then you walk away and you just kind of like do nothing at all I mean, imagine it you get a terrible scrape on your chin it's bleeding, you rush to the bathroom to look you find where it is, how deep it is and then you walk out of the bathroom and you kind of go about your day that's hearing, but not doing, according to James. Sadly, I have experience here. In both categories. Like the analogy and what he's pointing to. Uh, once I got sick, and my doctor ordered me a prescription, and guess what? I never got the prescription. Eventually I did, but it was after, like, my wife kept on getting phone calls from my pharmacist, because they have her number, not mine. She, she was like, do you need this medicine? They got called in, they keep on reminding me to pick it up. But, uh, and I never got around getting it. I know that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense, does it? You're like, maybe I should find a new church. It's like, that doesn't make sense. That's James's point. That's James's exact point. When we look at the Word and we don't embody it or, or lean into it with all who we are and obey it, we forego the new life that God has for us. Remember, our failure to obey God's Word cannot condemn us in Christ. And so it becomes, the Word does, a pathway to life. It becomes an inheritance for us to put on and to, as James said, say, be blessed by it even. The Word, even as it reveals our cuts and scrapes and the ways that we sin against others, Even as it is sort of a a a really humbling thing to be honest before God's word and to sit under, if we if we do that, but then do not embody it, we're we're kind of leaving treasure behind. That's sort of what James is saying. The reason we have been saved is to God's glory. as we are rescued by God we are being renewed to become more truly human of a, sort of a restoration effort by God himself and when we look into the word and then we see sort of the ways that God is inviting us to live into that and then don't James is saying that, that just it that doesn't compute for me it's like some of you have chased rewards or bank rewards and it's like you have thirty dollars uh, it's, but you have to do, like, a, a few things to sort of receive it. you know what I'm talking about? James is like, that's just like leaving that behind. Like, it's there for you. Why, why are you coming to this treasure chest and leaving it there? Which brings us to the other reason we're told to embody the word. It makes us truly free. Listen to how James describes the word in verse 25 but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. So, God's word here is described as perfect and liberating. Which is why, James says in a moment here, we are blessed in obeying it. Freedom in form are always married. You hear me talk about this quite a bit, because I think it's so central to what it means to be, as the scripture writers would say, a bondservant of Jesus. Because freedom and form are always married. You are most free when you are living according to the purpose that you were created. Freedom is not just freedom from A freedom to. It's a sort of a freedom from false purposes, but a freedom to true purpose. It's a very familiar analogy, but I think it's helpful. We would never say that a fish flopping on the sidewalk is free, even though this fish has broken free from sort of the constraints of water. The water that binds them, they're free from it. But we would never call a fish free. Why? Because their fish is not living according to its created purpose. That's why. They're meant to be bound by the water. They're actually most free when they're bound by the water. And the same is true of humans made in God's own image. We are most free when we're blessedly bound to Jesus. When we break from God, we're not free, but we're actually enslaved to other things. And we may think we're free, but we're not. And when God implanted His living word into us, when He saved us and united us to Jesus, we were set on a new trajectory toward God again, toward our design purpose, toward freedom. We were like a suffocating fish who can now breathe again, because we are bound to Jesus, Christians, you are bound to Jesus. You are most free. You are most free. You are most free there. I want you to think about freedom like good athletic movement. I have a friend who's an orthopedic surgeon, um, and all day long he corrects injuries to the sh- to the shoulder. What happens all day long? He corrects injuries to the shoulder. The reason most of his patients came in is because of sort of awkward movement patterns that just sort of repeated over and over and over and over again, and in time it created unbearable pain and injury that required orthopedic surgery. Uh, Ortho, like to straighten or to correct. His job is to free the shoulder, to free the shoulder, from bad athletic movement toward Purposed athletic movement. A correct ortho movement. And that's what salvation can be understood as. Jesus doesn't just just save us from hell. Though He does. The just outcome of sin against the Holy God. But He also realigns the movements of our soul. And the movements toward our relationships. So they don't hurt ourselves and others as well. This is true freedom. Like the Exodus of old. Because in the Exodus you know, God is forgiving them of their sin with the costly sacrifice of a lamb that points to King Jesus and His sacrifice, but it also gave them freedom, and that is salvation. It's both. It's both. So what does this mean for you? To close up here, two things I want to suggest. Number one, gospel obedience. That's the the phrase I want us to have, gospel obedience. I don't want to overcomplicate James here. Uh, James just says, obey God's word. And, um, I don't want to overcomplicate that. I would just add, we obey God's word, according to James here, not to be saved, but because we already are. It's the law of liberty. James' own, James own words here. We could call this, again, gospel. Gospel means good news, it points to what Jesus has done, the gospel does. And so, gospel obedience is, uh, as opposed to maybe self reliant obedience, self reliant obedience obeys, as James says. Why? In order to get God's help. Gospel obedience obeys not to get God's salvation, but because we already have it, we're standing on the other side of the river Jordan. The Ten Commandments themselves say, I am Lord your God who rescued you. And so the obedience that God even asked of the Old Testament people of God was one done in light of their salvation Not for it. And that's so important. One writer points out that James says there's blessing in the obedience. Did you catch that even as we read it? He will be blessed in his doing. And they point out it's not blessing because of the doing. It's blessing in the doing. We obey because it's a blessing. I've heard it said before, in years and years and years ago. If you're feeling spiritually dry, obey something in the Bible. That was the advice. It's a little pat for me, um, but it's kind of what James is getting at a little bit here. He's saying there's blessing in the doing. Doesn't mean it's like super happy and super joyful. Like one. One writer, I think, was Jack Miller, said, like, obedience sometimes feels like that because there's a severing, as we talked about, of the old, and the putting on the new. But there's blessing. There's blessing in the doing. I think, secondly, this passage invites us to change the way we usually approach Scripture. I would say it challenges those of us who approach Scripture intellectually to approach it relationally. that's a false choice. And I hope we're all about breaking down false choices. We do approach the Scriptures intellectually with our minds. But not only our minds. Just like we would approach our friend or our spouse with our minds. But if that's all you're doing, that's insufficient. Same with the Word of God. Like we approach it with our minds, of course, but we approach it relationally. Because, I mean, the way that James is talking about the Word is so... Relational. It is God's living word. It's the word that saves. It's the word that has been implanted in us. It's the word that is Jesus. It's not a dry law. I love this from uh, Scott McKnight. He says parakipto which is the word uh, "receive" in this in this sermon. Quote means to look into something in a receptive mode. The way an art lover meanders through the paintings of an exhibition, a music lover attends the music of a performance, an actress participates in a theatrical performance, a parent listens to the words of a child, or a lover absorbs the words of the one she loves. would love for us to approach Scripture relationally, not just with our minds, but with our relational souls. We receive the Word that way. Because we're most secure in Christ, we then apply What if we didn't try to build God's kingdom in our own strength, with our own human words, but instead entrusted ourselves to God's Word it doesn't mean we're passive. We obey scripture. James wants plenty to say about what to do in life. But the way we go about it is different. Isn't it? It's God-centered. It's Christ-dependent. It's the way of freedom. It's in Christ. Lord, we do pray that you would work this out in us. This, this sort of image of the living word that's been implanted in us, Lord, written on our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would receive it and embody it. Not to affect our salvation or to affect our our rescue, but because we are so deeply secure in you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.